Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 1st of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The world we live in has changed beyond recognition in the last 24 years. In 1995, there was no same-sex marriage. In fact, homosexuality was only decriminalised in 1993. There was, of course, no abortion. And back in the old days, there was no such thing as divorce. And divorce was not possible as it was specifically outlawed in the Constitution. That is, until a referendum was held and people were asked to remove that ban. On the 24th of November 1995, people said yes, but only by a very small margin. 50.28% voted yes, 49.72% voted no, making divorce legal in this country. Today and since then, people can qualify for a divorce if they've lived apart for four years of that's out of the previous five years and there's no prospect of reconciliation and that proper financial provision has been made for spouses and children. That may change, but it'll be up to you in a referendum that is set to be held in May when that time period would be reduced to a period of two years. Let's talk about this with Finnegal TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd, who's come into us this morning. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme. Yeah, I'm sure you'll remember vividly back in the old days, as I put it, uh, yes. when there was no divorce <clears throat> and how contentious the proposal was in 1995. I think the outcome of the referendum proves that beyond doubt for people it, it, who it don't was, remember it themselves. Yeah, no, it, was um, very, it was extremely close. But I, I think this time around, uh, it's not even a talking issue. Well, I think that people realise, and we all now know so many people people whose marriages have broken down and relationships as well and it's it's very common in those days it was probably hidden perhaps people stayed together even though they didn't legally mm. separate but they were effectively living separate lives uh, but you had no choice of starting off a new relationship which is what divorce allows you to do mm. provided that you make due and proper accommodation for the spouse and for your children. Mm. <clears throat> so the point now is that 
you, you have to be living apart for four out of the last five years. Our proposal, <coughs> excuse me, is that we will bring in, if this referendum is passed, we will bring in a bill which will mean that if you have been living apart for two of the last three years, then you can proceed through mm. the courts, and it still is the courts, to get your divorce, provided you've made proper arrangements for your spouse and your children and so on. Mm. <coughs> no doubt about it. But uh, I, I suppose uh, it's true to say that uh, had this been the proposal in 1995... It wouldn't have passed. It no. wouldn't have it passed. Wouldn't have passed there, no. There's no hope of it. it. It was very contentious, uh, and the idea at the time was that there was no hope of reconciliation. I I think the poster was, hello, divorce, goodbye, mammy, or something like that. That's <laughs> yeah, what I remember right. that well. Uh, yeah, right. Which, in fact, the point is, which completely missed the point that the only, mm. obviously, it clearly, when the marriage has irretrievably broken down, divorce is the end point. It's not the beginning point. Mm. But clearly, it does affect children, and there's no doubt about that, and can affect them very badly. That's why it's so important that there are, obviously, you know, proper and due process that mm. it's not easy to get. I mean, it's not easy. And that you must make due provision, and obviously, clearly, the children are upmost in everybody's mind, if and when a couple separate, or when they divorce, that they are looked after. And obviously, it leaves its scars mm. on everybody. Divorce does leave its scars on everybody. No doubt about that. Is there any risk of associated uh, to reducing this time limit because I, I think you do hear people it may be rare but you do hear people who split up uh, and years later come back together that absolutely absolutely it does happen and that's why obviously a period of separation often proceeds before you even mm. go down the road but if it has if people are absolutely and totally after being abused, mm. if there's a total mismatch, indeed, that the person you marry isn't the person <coughs> you thought it was, and mm. like that happens too, you know, that they just don't get on and that's it. But clearly, it'll be a choice of the people, as you say. And my view is that we should change it. And the other point I should make also is that if the referendum passes, the government will bring in a bill mm. uh, to make it two out of three years that you must be living apart. But also, you'll be given to the doll the power to make decisions in relation to divorce into the future. Mm. That's also part of, of the So that period of two years could increase to three <coughs> years or reduce to one year? It, it or could, to but no I, years. Yes. But, mm. Well, I mean, I think mm. that's, while that is unlikely, it certainly is possible. I think the key point is that if you trust the doll collectively, all of the local... <laughs> I don't want to hear Michael laughing. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of, uh, of the Personal reaction. Personal opinions aside. Uh, no, no, I'm thinking of the reaction oh, to that on the other yeah. side of the radio, yeah. I know, mm. but that's the yeah, truth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is the truth. Yeah. That is it a matter for the legislature to decide. Yeah. That's what will be in the referendum. If you keep saying things like that, I could yeah. end up divorced from my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's important to tell the truth. I'm not mm. misleading anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm making it very clear mm. what, the, what the actual decision they'll be making mm. and obviously there's plenty of time to think about it and to you know to make your views on and it will be the people who will make that decision mm. and I suppose uh, the most extreme scenario in time to come uh, you could be looking at quickie divorces Las Vegas type <coughs> uh, divorces well of course that theoretically could happen but mm. I don't mm. believe it will ever happen in Ireland it will still be the courts I think it's hugely important that you go through a legal process because it's mm. such obviously a marriage is, is such an important bond between people it's a legal mm. agreement as well as everything else and that it would be, and have to be the course that would make that decision. Yeah, I think one of the things uh, that won people over back in 1995 uh, when it was a very different world when we didn't know of second relationships let alone divorces and people remarrying and that sort of thing was the way that people were caught in abusive relationships and particularly in cases of domestic violence. Yes indeed and there's still an anomaly or mm. that's not the right word really for but it's still a serious problem. If, if 
if a couple if a couple separate uh, but don't divorce at the moment um and if after 9 months the male has a child with another partner that child is registered in his name and and properly so mm. but if the couple have separated and the woman has a child after 9 months with a new partner and they haven't divorced she cannot register the birth of that child or the father of that child she cannot get a passport for that child she has to apply to the courts for that process as well that's that's a, and I, I have a case at the moment where there was a, a seriously abusive partner mm. who won't consent you know to to allow that to happen and, and that's a power that nobody mm. should ever have and i'm not saying it's separate to divorce obviously mm. 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 but there are certain certainly continuing inequalities uh, in this case for 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 for, for women in mm. this situation mm. Mm. and obviously the, the the law has been changed but the health board haven't got the time to bring in the actual regulations and i'm coming Campaigning that with the HSC at the moment to get that changed so mm. that that should not continue. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think uh, that uh, highlights uh, the complexities of uh, people's relationships, something that uh, we really didn't recognise as a, a society back in 1995. I think at the time there was a, a widespread belief that you got married and lived happily ever after for, and everybody yeah. was pretty much the same so there was yes, no need yeah. for this or at least that was the view of half the population and It was and I think mm-hmm. obviously it was sincerely and honestly held mm-hmm. but I think it, I think just like as obviously uh, you know gay marriage and other issues people mm-hmm. people are much more aware of, of, the, of the complexity of human relationships and people and the respect mm-hmm. and acknowledge difference and I think that's important yeah, well, I, I don't think anybody under 25 uh, listening to this can believe the country that we lived in. I uh, you know that yeah, if you wanted condoms, uh, you had to go to a, a doctor and get a prescription and that sort of thing. You had to. In fact, in fact, you couldn't get them at all. Yeah, you uh, couldn't get a prescription. Until off the doctor and came down from a crowd of uh, females right, yeah, went of up the north. came down the train. Yeah, train yeah. Yeah, 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 And that was that was that was mm, it. Yeah. So it was it was absolutely silly. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, that's all gone now. But but even <clears> if you could get a prescription, uh, the doctor yeah. had to make sure that you were married. You couldn't give it to somebody yeah. who wasn't married. And I think there was a, I think yeah, it was yeah. a politician, a senator at the time. Mm. I think he was the leader in the Senate. Wouldn't yeah. actually hold the legislation in his hands <laughs> in case he committed a sin. He might have got <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> but he, you know, that's mm. how silly it was. You know, yeah. but that's you know we're a modern world now. But I think we're more respectful of people and we acknowledge. Um, difficulties and mm. help to solve them if we can. Uh, mm. And we did that in 1995 so that's not in contention anymore and I it's think, not, no, I uh, think that yeah. the proposal in 1995 uh, would see a far higher minor- majority than was uh, the case then uh, but do we need to reduce the time limit? Is four years not uh, a sufficient time limit because people have the opportunity to get uh, separated and go through a, a judicial separation. They can yes, legalise yeah. the status without going to that nuclear button. Well, I think the points are, first of all, you can you can separate without any, you know, just separate, mm-hmm. uh, trial separation. You can have a legal separation mm-hmm. that both parties agree, consent. Which is the equivalent um, of a, a divorce in terms of how you interact. Yes, uh, yeah, you make an arrangement. Custody. About, yeah, but you don't, you don't have the right to remarry. Yeah, but in yeah. terms of custody, terms of children, of course, uh, maintenance, and property, the, the, the house, and all, of, that, all yeah. of these things yes, that, yeah. that, that, that a, a divorce really does look after. Uh, so yeah. you can do that without getting divorced. You can, you can, of course, but you can't remarry. And I suppose mm. divorce gives you the opportunity, basically, uh, you know, to, to, to form a new relationship. To start uh, again. Yeah, but having mm. respectfully dealt with all of your liabilities and your, your mm. you know, put, put, put all of your responsibilities before then. And I suppose then, as you do, Separation is where the couples 
uh, want to separate, but they don't agree. They can they don't agree on on, mm. on on what's going to happen, and they go to court, and that can be a very long drawn out process. Trash it out, yeah. And mm. then the divorce, you don't mm. need either of the previous two, yeah. but it means if you have a legal separation, as you say, it's just a matter you've already agreed, and mm. the judge agrees to that. And you want to keep it as 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 le- uh, sorry as cheap mm. as I don't mean cheap is not the mm. right word, but that it should cost as little as, little as possible to go through the legal process okay, and, and, and shorten the time. But to live apart for two out of three years, your definitely relationship is over. Right. It certainly and, is over. And is that all you will need to prove <clears throat> if this referendum is passed yes. and you want a, a divorce? Yes, that, you, that you, you, must, you must show that you have lived apart. And I presume I, mm-hmm. the, the, that would be you'd have to show where you lived. I presume mm-hmm. your addresses, mm-hmm. you know, whatever way you prove you're, that you're living separately, mm-hmm. separate bills for and addresses w- and so Will on. you need uh, a formal uh, separation, a judicial separation in, in order ju- to qualify? You don't. No, no you don't need yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. You just will, go will, for divorce. Will you have to have gone to mediation? Well, I think it's inevitable that that's the obvious question. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody would legally separate or or go through the divorce process without without trying to make sure that that mm. you settle Well, some people will tell you i mean if you can't look somebody in the eye without them punching you in the face yeah. uh, you're not going to go to a mediator uh, but not, will it be necessary to do it well i think i well I, well that's a good question mm. i don't know mm. the answer to yeah. that michael mm-hmm. is but i presume a judge like what a judge would normally work on and i'm not a lawyer mm. and i'm only just uh, surmising mm-hmm. that you've already got your agreement there and he'll rubber stamp it basically mm. he's not going to decide whether you're living together or not you've already proven that you don't you know in terms of your documentation I presume mm. that's the reasonable thing otherwise you could have long drawn out uh, cases in relation to divorce which you know which wouldn't make sense either Okay Alright uh, but uh, we had hoped uh, to discuss this just to mention uh, with independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick I'm not sure actually what his opinion on it is uh, but it's obviously a conversation that we have to have over the coming months unfortunately it wasn't available to us today and perhaps we can return to it uh, no problem, in yeah, some sure. time between now and May because the uh, vote with the local elections yeah I think it's late May I don't have the actual date but it will be yeah no mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. we all have well we, it'll be every TD including Peter and myself oh yeah well the whole country I have a yeah, feeling, though, there'll be a low turnout because I don't think there's going to be that much interest in it. You know, well, mm. which is out, yeah. which well, is I very different to 1995, of course. Yes, yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah a little bit like the blasphemy referendum. I mean, if you tell that in the <coughs> 90s or the 80s, uh, the whole yeah. country would have been out voting no. You know, <laughs> uh, but that's the world that we live in. The wor- way it's changed. Yeah, but if it's right to reduce it from four to two years. Where does Sorry, that figure? It's, it's it's going from four, four out of the last five, five years to, to two, two out of the last three. three. Yeah, but to reduce it from four to two, uh, if that's the right thing to do, uh, why not go further? Why why have this well, time restriction? Well, that's, you know, that's mm, a question. Mm. That's a question for the uh, obviously mm. people might have different views, but I think two years is very clear. If you're separated for two years, it's definitely all over. And I spoke to a number of people. Who, who who are in that situation mm. and, and they say the last thing is divorce it's at the end of a process okay. of breaking up that mm. has been going on for a long time mm. and that the divorce itself is not splitting the, the marriage the marriage is gone Okay well this is a, a discussion that begins and we'll be talking about this over the next four sure. or five months or, or so let's talk about the other divorce for a very sure, <laughs> quick okay. moment yeah. uh, the one that's not easy uh, they say divorce is never easy <laughs> and sometimes it gets protracted uh, but none more so 
than uh, the United Kingdom's divorce from the European Union? Where is it going, do you think, at this well, stage? Uh, well, let's put it this way. You have two parties to this, the, the European Union, all 27 mm. countries, and you have the UK. The UK don't know what they want. And that's the appalling vista that we all face as a result of mm. the indecision of the British Parliament. They want to leave Europe. They don't, they mm. don't agree on the conditions mm. that they want to have. And therefore, we're left in a situation where we're going over a cliff. Mm. I mean, our economy is, is in jeopardy. Mm. If there is a hard Brexit, there's no doubt about it. Or it's peace in our country it's in the long run or in the medium mm. term is in danger. Our north-south north relationships, our agriculture, it's going to seriously and adversely affect If the cut-off date was the 29th of March, we'd be in real trouble. Very, I mean, very hopefully that trouble. will be extended. But, but they uh, have I to mean, apply for an yeah, extension and yeah. then they have to give grounds for that. But but let's say that then, didn't happen. Uh, well, then, uh, you'd, you'd be talking about a crash-out, no-deal Brexit. No, yeah. Because mm. it seems that Britain wouldn't have the time in mm. their own parliament to put the legislation through, yeah. as one of the ministers but said it, yesterday. It, it, it's also this position that they're taking on the backstop. We say they have to accept the backstop yeah. They say no. That mean, and the reason we say they have to accept the backstop is they agreed we, it in the first place. But, well, but, yeah. but yes, but we don't want a hard border. If they say they won't accept it, we're going to have a hard border. But the only so, reason is yeah. there, Michael, is because it's a lose, lose may agree to it personally. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, sure. that's, and, yeah. That's, and I mean, yeah. when the Prime Minister of Great Britain mm. goes back on her word and uh, mm. on, her, on a negotiated agreement, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it mm. does. It, that's mm. why we're in such a mm. bad place. Mm. Yeah. And it is very. It is. You know, She's totally uh, untrustworthy, isn't she? Well, uh, absolutely. Mm, I think yeah, the, yeah. the English don't know what they're doing, but the problem is that we're not. We can't let them destroy, you know, the, the, the good relationship between Britain and Ireland, mm. and the good relationship with North and South. I mean, and uh, bring back trouble it, on the border in terms of, uh, you know, uh, for businesses mm. and indeed even political violence, which is an option. I mean, for even people who would be intent on, on maximising that, and we know that mm, they'd need a, a, an extension. I, I think if they were to hold a second, well, it gives more time. but, but it if they were to hold time. a second referendum, they'd need an extension. But even if they did that and decided to yeah. remain, which is not, not certain, but if they decided to remain, they'd be the laughing stock of Europe. They would, but I suppose it would suit everybody, certainly in this island, that they would remain in Europe. Well, we'd get a great laugh but, uh, out of it. But the me? point is, the problem is that I've spoken to a number of mm. people in England and a lot of them are saying, look, we just want rid of you now mm. and we can't put up with this stuff anymore. That's what I'm hearing mm. from some people. I think that's appalling. Mm. You know. yeah. All right, well, that's divorce. That's yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming okay, in thank us you very this much. morning. Thanks. Fine Gael TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk a little bit more about that other divorce, Brexit, and just 56 days to go now to the deadline of the 29th of March and the concern of no-deal Brexit and the United Kingdom crashing out of the European Union. Concern, as I say, and farmers are probably more concerned than most. Michael Creed is the Minister for Agriculture and our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, has been asking the Minister what preparations are in place to soften the blow. What we have been doing over since 2016 is building resilience with this, within the sector, you know, in both inside the farm gate and outside the farm gate, and a lot of investment in that space in terms of ANC payments, uh, even as late as this week launching the uh, Beef Environmental Efficiency Programme, uh, increasing resources to Borbia, new market opportunities. And what I suppose I was doing uh, this week in Cabinet was kind of bringing together all the threads, uh, identifying the, the level of the exposure that we have, the co- potential consequences, and our state of readiness in terms of crash-out Brexit, our engagement with the Commission in terms of responses that will be needed in those uh, circumstances. How ready are we for a crash-out Brexit? 
Well, we're, we are uh, ready in terms of what our administrative obligations will be. Um, we are also ready um, in, in terms of the level of awareness that's there in terms of uh, whole of government about the agri-food sector and the fisheries sector uh, and commission readiness to respond even as late as this week. And we've had ongoing rolling engagement with all the key operators in the Brexit context, the commission, the Barnier task force, obviously the government here and the Department of Finance in particular, uh, most recently in the Commission with Commissioner Hogan in a bilateral meeting last Monday. Um, and I don't want to get into too much technical detail, but there's a standard kind of suite of responses that the, that the Commission can deploy in terms of market disturbance. And they would work for certain sectors, uh, and then we would need in other areas, particularly in the area of beef, exceptional aid from the Commission, and that's also um, available to us and satisfied that the Commission is ready to deploy that. I mean, if you have a crash out and if the UK applies tariffs, our 4.5 billion euros worth of exports to the UK will be hit with 1.7 billion euros of tariffs on top of that. Now, that's an existential challenge to us, to the UK market. And what our ambition is in the context of response is to ride out that rough period remain on the supermarket shelves so that we don't lose consumer and retail outlet confidence uh, in the UK market. Because ultimately, in a month, six months, or a year, or longer, the UK and the European Union, and consequently Ireland, will do a trade agreement. And we need to make sure that we're not losing in the interim to other suppliers who would displace our product, and that's our ambition. So in terms of that 1.7 billion you were talking about in terms of tariffs, how much does the European aid offset that for the beef industry? Well, I mean, uh, what our ambition would be is to compensate farmers uh, from whatever price drop happens so that the industry can continue to supply that product into the market. And that obviously will depend on you know, what the market reality is in the UK. The UK could apply tariffs. It could apply tariffs on sp- across the board. It could apply them on specific products. They might decide to apply no tariffs. But the problem with applying no tariffs is that they would have to apply zero tariffs to every country that's supplying the market then. And that then, whereas in theory no tariff sounds good, it undermines the value of the market to us relative to other third country suppliers. Has that been indicated to you from your colleagues in the UK that they might do that, might not push WTOs on Irish goods? No, what we know is that they have notified WTO of their intention to apply tariffs. Um, but I think you have to consider also what the consequences of that are for food inflation in the UK. Presumably that's a consideration for yourselves as well when you're talking about prices that may increase here. Is that a particular risk, do you think, of people, are their food shop going to get particularly more expensive and are there particular parts of the, the supermarket that might be offended more than others? Well, we are the UK's, we are the UK's biggest customer for their agri-food exports, not widely understood or appreciated, so there has to be a potential consequence for those imports to cost more because the relationship in the future will not be as good as the relationship we currently have. So all of those checks, those supply chain uh, costs that will be associated with they being a third country, all of those ultimately find their way either back to the primary producer or forward to the ultimate consumer. And therein is you know, not a good no- news story here for either consumers or primary producers. And what we're attempting to do is to ride out the immediate shocks of that and to get to a situation where we negotiate a future trading relationship. Is there anywhere in particular that could be worse felt? Well, I think the beef sector is the most exposed. 
uh, for us, it, it carries tariffs of 70%. Uh, some of the other uh, suite of responses, routine responses, if I might use that term, from the Commission for Market Disturbance, could, uh, in certain circumstances, deal with the consequences, say, for maybe our dairy and pig meat, because they are globally competitive. Our beef sector uh, could not withstand the kind of competition that could be unleashed, particularly from third countries, uh, where standards of production are very different, where environmental regulation is very different, and where consequently the price to the consumer <coughs> would be much lower than our regulatory uh, environment could could in- allow us to produce beef to the UK market for. So are we likely to see more increases here in Irish supermarkets in terms of beef, pork and dairy? The, well, we're not. We're, we're not big. We're no. I don't. I don't envisage our product will become dearer to Irish consumers, um, and we're not big export or importers from the UK of primary produce of that nature. Is there any particular goods people should be worried about? Well, look. In, in this department, I'm worried about the entire range of uh, products from from the from the agri food sector. So whether it's beef, pork, dairy, sheep meat, the drinks industry, uh, the tillage sector, um, they all have a degree of exposure. The unfortunate uh, reality is there's no upside here. Uh, it's all downside in the agri-food. Mm. The Taoiseach warned in the Dáil the other day that within a couple of weeks of a no-deal Brexit there could be job losses and quite significant job losses and followed up then by the Minister of Finance who said he thought that agri-food in particular was the most exposed to that. Do you foresee that happening? And if so, what are the scale of those job losses that we could be talking about? It depends on, on, on the UK's response. I mean, if it's tariffs at 70%, that's a very, very significant challenge for us. I don't think that's a sustainable long-term position for the UK to approach, to take. Um, and what we would be looking at is supporting the industry to come through the short-term shocks uh, so that we're able to uh, survive until there's a future trading relationship put in place. How long could those supports last for if we get into a situation where we're another year down the line and there's no deal? Does the money start to run out? Well, look, I mean... You're looking for certainty where there is none. Um, the only message I would, would give to the, the agri-food industry is we appreciate the scale of this challenge, particularly in the beef area. We have prepared well in terms of laying the groundwork at a European level and creating the awareness across the whole of government and particularly in the Department of Finance about what supports might be necessary. So for farmers and fishermen then who may be listening to this in particular, what should they be doing right now to prepare for the worst case scenario? I'm not sure there's a whole lot that individual farmers can do at this stage. I mean, the drive to competitiveness is critical. That that will enable any enterprise to be to to to, to you know navigate these challenges uh, as best as possible. But I mean, for example, if you take in the fishing industry, uh, we catch 85 million euros worth of fish in UK territorial waters. That's supporting fish processing jobs all across the, the, you know, the coastal communities uh, uh, in, in, in Ireland. Losing that uh, level of uh, stock is, is a, a very significant challenge to them. The consequent displacement of effort out of UK waters would have equally difficult uh, consequences for us in terms of the possibility of overfishing in our own waters, uh, the... Um, Overfishing, uh, the, the, the the you know the requirement for financial supports for the industry because uh, the, you know the, the the finite stock that's available of of, of resources uh, you know could be overfished by the, 
the influx of boats that don't normally fish in our in our water. So um, that displacement, uh, the loss of access to UK waters, the consequences for the processing sector is is a really existential challenge in many respects for the fishing industry. Do we know what happens yet in terms of an O deal? Like under those WT rules, could Irish vessels still fish in UK waters, or are they kicked out straight away on March 29th? Well, what, what the UK have said is that from uh, departure date, there's no guaranteed access. And what we have always wanted to do, working with like-minded member states, and there are about eight member states who are impacted here, the Swedes, the Germans, the Dutch, the Danes, the Belgians, the French, ourselves, France, Spain. They're the most adversely impacted, and we've been working with them. And what we've been saying is we want the issue of access to UK waters linked with the broader trade negotiations. So you want passporting financial services, we want access to your waters. You want you know, planes to fly across European airspace, we want access to your fishing waters. This is the quid pro quo um, in terms of the deal. Uh, and, and that remains our focus. The Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, speaking to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. The HSE says uh, the overtime ban yesterday by psychiatric nurses posed staffing problems in nine mental health facilities. Let's talk about the escalating action of some 6,000 members of uh, the Psychiatric Nurses Association with Peter Hughes, who's General Secretary of uh, the PNA. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Before we talk uh, about your dispute again, perhaps uh, you could tell us uh, about uh, the impact of yesterday's action locally because uh, undoubtedly the psychiatric unit in Drogheda was one of uh, the nine facilities uh, that experienced problems yesterday and of concern undoubtedly as well to uh, many of our, our listeners who would have loved ones in the care of your members. Um, for the Drogheda unit yesterday there was sufficient staff um, that wouldn't always be the case but there was sufficient staff yesterday we did have problems around the country, uh, particularly North County Dublin in the St. Edith service, where we had some staff members that worked in residential units that weren't able, there was nobody uh, able to come in to relieve them and let them go off duty. And we had one staff member that didn't get off until 4.30 yesterday evening. Uh, and uh, the reports uh, uh, appear to indicate that you instructed members not to take up their shifts if uh, units were not fully staffed. Uh, undoubtedly, that compounded the problem from the HSE's perspective. Yes, um, there is a huge reliance on overtime and agency uh, throughout the mental health services. And um, basically, what ha- what happened in a lot of services is that... Uh, Community services were ever either closed or curtailed, and community staff were redeployed into uh, residential units, such as the admission units. And we also had uh, a number of areas that uh, senior nurse managers uh, would have to work on the front line in uh, in working the admission units out of the residential units. So it's um, it does ha- it does have a very significant impact. I'm still awaiting feedback today. I know there are some areas at the moment that uh, staff have been unable to take up duty mm. or similar to yesterday, there are staff in areas that there is no nurse available to take their place. 
Uh, and did you target uh, some areas of uh, the service over others? Uh, because uh, the HSE says it wasn't a blanket ban uh, and that uh, the ban was imposed uh, to different levels in some uh, areas than it was in others. That's correct. We did. We, we identified areas uh, that this ban would take place. We will be reviewing that on Monday in relation to the three days next week. Uh, we did exempt the child and adolescent services. We did index, uh, exempt the intellectual disability services. And we did exempt some adult mental health services. Uh, but our board are meeting on Monday and we're going to review that for the three days next week. All right, and you're still planning to go ahead with three full days of strike, three rolling days. Uh, is it possible to do that in psychiatric services? Uh, is it different, in other words, than it would be uh, from general nursing, in that uh, you could argue that all of the people that you care for are in a- an emergency situation of one level or another? Well, we have yet to meet in relation, we've had meetings in relation to contingency plans uh, regarding the, the not making ourselves available for additional hours. We haven't yet met in relation to our three strike days, which are going to be the 12th, 13th and 14th of February. I would uh, presume that the HSE uh, will look for contingencies, uh, derogations in certain areas. Uh, they have indicated that they will be looking for derogations for mm. residential units. Uh, it's likely to result in the closure of all community services, uh, even though, uh, as provision for change, we have very inadequate community services as it stands. That really is a, a desperate situation, I'm sure you'll uh, agree. Well, we did research for Vision for Change mm. 10 years in uh, with the Royal College of Surgeons, and we're, the anniversary of the launch of Vision for Change was last Thursday. Mm. And oh, and it's a shameful situation we're in. We're, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. we see is there's only 30% of the promised community developments, uh, and yet they took 76% of the beds out of the system. Mm. So uh, but I, it, it is a, a lot desperate. of that lack of development is to do with lack of nurses. Mm. Uh, but but, but the, the, we, we don't have enough nurses to, to uh, run the service as it is, which I would believe is is not comprehensive. Right? Mm. And there is no doubt about that. I don't think anybody disputes that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sure you'll agree that it's a desperate situation to withdraw that service uh, as skeletal as it is from vulnerable people in community services. Well, unfortunately, um, the, the, the government uh, don't see uh, fit to, to develop proper comprehensive services. We actually yeah. had a campaign in 2016 to address recruitment retention uh, issues. The Bring Them Home uh, campaign? Uh, no, no, this was mm. this was a campaign. I, I, we had industrial action mm. in relation mm. to recruitment mm. and a lot of measures uh, were implemented but uh, not in, none of them addressing really the pay issue. But one of the areas was that there was a subgroup set up to look at the development of 24-7 crisis intervention services in the community. And uh, a subgroup met, came up with a report that we would develop two pilot sites uh, urban, in the urban area and two pilot sites in the rural areas. And to the astonishment of us, the HSE have refused to, I, to I, go ahead with those pilot sites. So mm-hmm. or the HSE are not interested in developing proper comprehensive community services, which are 
uh, widespread throughout all the all the English-speaking countries where all our nurses are going. Mm. Am I am I right in uh, thinking, Canada though, Peter? and Australia? Sure, but am I right in thinking, Peter, uh, that your dispute differs from that of the INMO dispute in that this is continuing industrial action, uh, and uh, that uh, you have had promises that have not been fulfilled in terms of recruitment and retention, uh, and uh, God knows how many times we discussed uh, the amount of money that went unspent, uh, twenty million euro over uh, a number of years. Uh, which uh, was of a budget, an additional budget of thirty-five million for that purpose. Um, well, just just a few points. There. One is what we are doing at the moment is not industrial action. What we're doing at the moment is just uh, withdrawal of goodwill, where people are not making themselves available to work additional hours, which mm. I said is the huge reliance on service. And no, our, our issue is quite similar the INMO issue in the sense that what I'm saying is in 2016 mm. measures were put in like there was an increase in the amount of student places etc but we we have seen actually that our vacancy rates have increased by 40% in the last year mm. we used to have 500 vacancies now we have 700 nationally and that situation is going to exacerbate so we do know there is a crisis and we believe that the way to address that crisis is to address the nursing pay issue in relation to parity with the therapy group. Okay, but 20 million went unspent on recruiting staff in 2016, I think, and 17 again. They're they're unable to to Mm. recruit sufficient uh, nurses, and I think uh, most chief officers throughout the country have acknowledged that. The HSE are acknowledging that, you know, they're unable to recruit. They have the vacancies, they can't recruit. As you alluded to, um, the Bring Them Home campaign, um, whatever, it would have cost uh, probably the best part of a half a million to launch. And it generated six psychiatric nurses from the UK. Mm. And to my knowledge, only three of them stayed in the finish-up. No, so, so the amount right. of money that is spent on that, mm. so really, um, it is not attractive. People are not attracted to come in. We have up to 34% of our staff can retire by 2021. We do not, we are not training enough to replace them. So this situation is going to exacerbate. Okay. And what's happening is our young graduates are staying for a short time and then they are moving to the UK, Canada, Australia, where their pay is better and where their terms and conditions are better and where they're not working, uh, short-staffed, with lack of continuity of care because they um, we are very reliant on overtime and agency, a lot, a lot of services, and that affects... Just, just, just very briefly, Peter, if this does go to full all-out strike, the three days of rolling strike, uh, would you expect that to be a full complement of staff in uh, Drogheda and the other psychiatric units? What we, we will have to draw up the contingencies. As, as I said, we haven't had that uh, conversation yet. Uh, we would be covering emergencies, but what that will entail at this stage, um, we haven't had, sat down with the HSE on the on that issue. I would hope that we don't get to that stage. Okay, but it, no, no it, nurse wants to strike. Is it possible to keep those units open without a, a full complement of staff? Well, we will have to we will have to look at that um, again. I, as I said, we will have to talk to the HSE about contingencies and what that contingencies will look like because it's very difficult to address that at the moment. We are due to meet them next week again, and I would imagine a lot of the conversation will be 
But, but to keep the to keep the units open and all of the patients treated and cared for, uh, you would need a full complement of staff, if not a nearly full complement of staff, would you not? I mean, uh, without talking to the HSE about contingency plans, uh, is that not basic logic? Well, that will that again. That will be the uh, it'll come out of the contingency talks, and it'll be the decision of uh, okay. our strike committees. We will be guiding our strike committees in relation. To okay, so there is the prospect then that that agreement won't be reached, and those units may be forced to close. I can't see that happening, but um, well, I would imagine the the units will remain open. Okay, we've asked. We've been uh, uh, already asked for contingency for admission okay. and eventually. All right, we we'll leave there for the moment, Peter. Thank okay. you as always thank for joining us this morning, okay. Peter Hughes, General Secretary of uh, the PNA. That's the Psychiatric Nurses Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. And to all our listeners, Mary was in touch to say a country that allows unrestricted access to abortion up to 12 weeks will pass this referendum with flying colours. That's in relation to the proposed changes to the divorce legislation. Margaret, on the same topic, thought the whole idea of a couple having to separate for a certain amount of years that this was to give couples time to really think about it and that there'd be no quickie divorces. Mm. Well, it will be the case uh, as uh, the proposal is being put, but the time is being reduced from four out of five years to two out of three years. But as Fergus O'Dowd did outline quite clearly, uh, if uh, this referendum is passed, uh, there's the potential that that will be eliminated altogether in time or increased or whatever the doll decides. Kevin thinks that we should just take divorce away altogether, that we should have another vote on that. He thinks that people should know themselves that divorce is not right for anyone. I think we should choose who Kevin should marry and make him marry him whether he likes it or not. Mairead feels that this legislation is long overdue. If you are divorcing someone, why should you have to wait so long? Moving then to the children's hospital and the spiralling cost. Fran thinks that the squandering of taxpayers' money on the hospital is a disgrace and that the Department of Finance must be held to account. Mm-hmm. Pat from McBoy thinks that maybe they could use some of the Apple money and that this might help to pay for some of the costs. Yeah, but it wouldn't take the sting out of the tail, would it? Uh, I mean, well, maybe it would take the sting out of the tail, but you'd still have a, a pretty nasty sting to contend with and the question as to why it spiralled out of control. We had a listener from Navin in touch regarding the weather that you mentioned there mm. on your forecast there, Michael. And it's in relation to gritting roads. Pat thinks that all school roads should be gritted, that not just the main roads, that a lot of schools are on side roads and says that the road near Town School is very slippy today and that more should be done to get roads gritted. Yeah, please take care if you are on the roads uh, today and expect the unexpected uh, and uh, the prospect of black ice. Yes, because I saw snowflakes there a while ago coming mm, down. Yeah, a flurry. <laughs> a flurry. Mm. Um, moving to the topic of the nurses and the strike, Michael. We had an interesting phone call from Joe yesterday, who's a retired emergency medical technician. Mm-hmm. And he worked in the ambulance service in the region for nearly 30 years. He's retired now nearly 40 years. He says his heart 
does go out to the nurses because he knows having worked in the sector for so many years how hard they work and the demand that is on them but he feels that they are being led on a merry dance by the unions he says with everything that's going on nowadays and what they have signed up to I really don't think they're going to get very far. Mm. There are vast numbers in the health service who have signed up to the same and he feels if it would be grand for the nurses if they came out for a couple of hours a certain When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. days in a month to fight for an increase in staff levels and maybe leave the pay aside for a while. He agrees that they are pushed to the pin of the collar for work but if they get the pay increase there will be an avalanche and the country can't afford it. He says in my day I had to do a 40 hour week and after I finished that I'd have to go on 14 hour call twice in a week for pittance Michael I had to do 33 hours on call for a while as well as my 40 hours I, I'm not saying I'm not for the nurses but I am but I just worry that they are being led on a merry dance and he says you do a great job on the show Michael I know you're getting a lot of criticism at the moment but keep the flag flying Yeah and keep the criticism coming I don't mind that at all uh, as long as we're talking uh, and it's an open honest conversation and we're taking into account all of uh, the arguments uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, there's many people who agree with what Joe was saying there others will say look it's their dispute uh, and it's up to them to take the action uh, that uh, they feel is uh, appropriate. And if they feel that is uh, an injustice, well, uh, they have every right as uh, an industrial uh, collective uh, to try and put that right. Anthony from RD uh, got in touch and he says that the impression that was given in the Vox Pop yesterday with the nurses was that this strike is for a pay restoration. Maybe you would clarify because because it is my understanding that this is for a 12% rise over and above restoration, which is promised shortly. And also the attempt has been made to portray this strike as something the public needs to improve the service, which is a deception to make it more acceptable to the public when it is in fact about pay packets, say 
says Anthony from RD. Okay, well, the nurses uh, will contend uh, that if uh, they don't reach pay parity, which would be the case in other countries with people of similar grades, uh, well, then you're just not going to be able to recruit or retain nurses. So uh, they say it's about the recruitment and retention of nurses. But in order to get there, you need to bring the pay levels up. Michael says, I can see... No, this is Michael. This is a text, sorry. Mm. I can see the nurse's point and I know how politicians operate. The workplace is forever changing and the government is trying to hold the union to an old deal. The politicians can change their mind at the drop of a hat. Example, Theresa May. So. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! Well, let's not talk ill of uh, the British Prime Minister. For God's sake, she's a woman of integrity, most trustworthy individual. Uh, well, she was the day before yesterday. <laughs> right. Jim from Navin uh, was saying that the nurses should consider taking a case to the European Court of Human Rights as their health is suffering. He says, I'm sure family life as well as the arrogance of Harris and Varadkar is uh, sickening and Fianna Fáil have no backbone either propping up uh, these people. Shame on them and well done to the nurses. Don't back down. You have the support of most people in the country, says Jim from Navin. He may be right. In fact, Marie, you went out and about and asked people if they supported the strike action being taken by nurses. 100% were behind them all. The jobs that they are doing, the, the hours they put in and the government has the cheek. That's all I can say. They have a cheek. The government is saying if the nurses get paid more than other uh, workers in the public sector would have to get paid more. What do you think of that? No, absolutely not. Uh, Role reversal, in my opinion. TDs get their wages, they get the TDs, the TDs do the same hours as well for the little money. Well, I think the nurses work very hard. I think there's very few of them on the ground and I think they're underpaid and understaffed and I think the hospital is to blame, not the nurses. I sympathise with the nurses because I think they work extremely hard and they're entitled to an increase in salary. You You don't think they've been too greedy? No, I don't think they are. I know some people think they should lower their expectations, but personally I think that they're worth it. Anytime I was in hospital, I was very glad of the kindness of the nurses and they always were extremely nice. There's going to be appointments cancelled today and procedures today and then if there's further strikes, would you worry about that? I would. I feel terribly sorry for the patients, you know, especially people with cancer or, you know, having to get tests done and Whatever, you know, I I do feel very sorry for them. So I'm just happy I'm not one of them. And you're hoping that it will be solved? I I certainly am. And I think they will do their best. Both sides will. Maybe the nurses will have to lower their expectations a little bit. And the government will have to give in a little bit more. I do indeed, yes. They should be striking all the time for more money and less for the government. The government are saying they can't pay them more because if they give to the nurses, they'll have to give to everybody else in the public sector. What do you think of that? rubbish. They took less money themselves to be well able to afford it. Oh, they, they, they do a wonderful job. I don't think they're half paid. They're not paid enough and uh, I just want to say God bless them all. They deserve more money and they've every right to be out striking. They shouldn't be striking in the first place um, in my opinion. They do so much work and nobody, nobody clearly realises so they deserve more money. They're talking about further strikes. Would that annoy you or concern you that patients might be affected? No, not at all because I don't think they'd they'd jeopardise their patients um, in in sake of a strike but they have every right to strike 
uh, they need to they need to get what they deserve. I think it's uh, it's it's well needed. I think the nurses in this country are under underpaid and overworked. I think. It's Have you experience of it? I do. Yeah, I was uh, in the hospital recently, and uh, the care I got was was substantial. And uh, I think that they need they need to be looked after. I think we need to look after our nurses and doctors more. Definitely, the the HSE in this country, I think, is is it needs to be worked on big time. I think the government need to get their act together. I think they're right. They should they should have more money. They work so hard and they don't be appreciated. And would you mind having to pay more taxes to pay the nurses if it came to that? Well, something something will have to go, hasn't it? So if it's the taxes, so. Yes, yes. I support them all the way. Fair play them. The nurses are on strike. Do you support them or what do you think? God, yes, yes, yes. I think they're doing the right thing because they, they really work hard and they really, really work hard. You know, they deserve. They deserve everything they get. Do you know what I mean? You know, I'd be for the nurses, yeah. Like when you go in there, if you're in hospital, you know, they're so nice. Try to do everything for you, you know. So really, they don't have enough staff in there and like the work nurses are working probably someone else's job too as well do you know two jobs like god love them it's horrible for them yes i've just seen them all out striking yeah i fully support it i think uh, you know the hospitals are under a lot of stress they're really busy and there's not enough nurses uh, so i think we need more nurses what would you say to the government's response that if they pay the nurses extra, they'll have to pay everyone else in the public sector? Well, I don't think that's true. I think uh, if they pay the nurses a small bit, it'll encourage more of them to come come home from abroad. And, you know, this, the crisis is in the hospital, so that needs to be addressed first. All right. On equivocal support for nurses from those people in Drogheda that you spoke to the other day. That's right. And it was just random people I stopped, Michael. Uh, but uh, they all very much backed them as you could hear. Very good. Can I go mm. to one tweet on a different topic? Just We got a tweet uh, from uh, Stewie following your interview with Jim Wells on Brexit and says, Jim Wells of the DUP urging the EU to compromise. Wow. He and his party would love nothing better better than a hard border, checkpoints and all. How do you keep your cool with him, Michael? <laughs> Stewie wants to know. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Stewie. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The spiralling cost of uh, the National Children's Hospital came under the scrutiny of two separate Oireachtas committees uh, this week. Earlier in the week, uh, the Minister for Health was uh, outlining his concerns to the Health Committee. Uh, And yesterday, officials were in front of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. Shane Castles is a Fianna Fáil TD for Meath West and a member of the PAC. Yes, Michael, it was a long session uh, discussing the, the financial uh, overspiraling of the cost of the, of the children's hospital uh, at the PAC yesterday. And quite frankly, um, we, we were extracting answers, but I'm not too sure anybody would be very happy with the answers uh, that were forthcoming. Um, I know there were a lot of figures bandied about yesterday. People have probably heard a lot of figures on radio and television. And maybe just to recap, this all started off back in uh, with a figure being quoted by then Minister for Health, now Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, saying that this project would be built for 650 million all in, and that was inclusive of VAT. 
uh, and now we see their figure go to 1.7 billion. Mm. And even starting off yesterday, what was very frustrating was the Secretary General, Mr. Breslin of the Department of Health, saying, oh, oh no, that, um, that figure of 650 million didn't include the VAT. And, you know, right from the get-go, there was a kind of maybe a bad atmosphere surrounding proceedings, uh, and that was the starting off point. Right. Uh, and as you say, it's at 1.7 uh, billion as we speak, uh, but that figure in itself is uncertain. Uh, I think there is a, an expectation that this could exceed two billion euro, regardless of what the final figure is. It seems set to become the most expensive hospital to build in the world. Yep, that's that's quite con- correct. That this up until this point, the second most expensive was in Australia at one point four billion. Uh, and the most expensive was in Stockholm at 2.2 billion, one of the most expensive cities in the world. And that works out at around 1.6 million euro per bed. Uh, the average globally of what you're supposed to be able to deliver a hospital bed for, uh, in terms of when you factor all of the costs, is around 1 million euro per bed. So we're working at, at double the cost uh, already. And that is quite frustrating. What's frustrating here is the governance and the practice. So the, the Department of Health put in place a children's board to deliver this project. Mm. Uh, and some very senior people from the private industry on that. And they obviously haven't been able to, to grapple with the manner in which they've delivered it. And one of the key points is that there was a detailed design for the groundworks that are currently nearly actually completion. People would have seen pictures of the huge uh, expanse in the ground that has been cleared and prepped. And that had a detailed design, and that was called Phase A. And that's coming in around on budget at 100 million. So in that original figure of 637, 100 million of that was supposed to be for the groundworks. They did a detailed design, they signed the contract for it, and that's actually going to come in on budget. They didn't have a detailed design at the time of tendering uh, for Phase B. And that's where things have spiralled out of control. And that's where I think a lot of the, the debate and the anger uh, focused on yesterday. And I suppose, Michael, it's now getting down to the situation of, well, who, not, who knew what, when? And um, it appears as though this was known two years ago uh, and uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform became aware that there were problems two years ago. They were asking questions two years ago. They were asking then if that figure of 450 million uh, would see the project increase over time to over 2 billion. Uh, and there are questions about when the Minister Simon Harris uh, came uh, into uh, knowledge of this. Uh, and you called into question his integrity yesterday. Well, I, I, I think that the, the charge I put to, to Mr. Breslin uh, was quite correct on the, on the basis that we know that Simon Harris uh, was informed of the overspend of 450 million. So this is 450 million extra on top of the 983 that the Cabinet signed off in, in late 2017. So they signed off... 46% more. More. And he was informed of this on the 22nd of, 27th of August, uh, just gone by. And yet in the Dáil on the 18th of September, my colleague Barry Cowan was asking questions on whether this was going to come on budget. And he, told, he was told mm. it was. And quite frankly, I put that to the Secretary General of the Department of Health, who prepares answers for the Minister. You are misleading the Dáil. And by virtue of that, you are misleading the Irish people. And he was trying to be extremely, uh, of course, choice with his words in terms of, well, they were only dealing with emerging trends at that point. And I think that got the better of me in terms of my frustration with the kind of uh, answers that were being provided, uh, that they knew damn well uh, last summer this thing was heading towards 1.5 billion uh, and well out of control. And yet they were being evasive with the truth. Okay. Uh, and by virtue of that, the minister 
in my opinion, was being evasive with the truth uh, in terms of what he was or was not answering, and they were, they were splitting hairs. So you're saying the minister misled the doll? I'm saying that I put that charge to Yes, I, I, I know, were, and I, I was asking you whether you were questioning the minister's integrity. It uh, appears as though uh, you're saying that he lied and misled the doll. I'm saying that if he, if he had the, the knowledge, Michael, that this thing was spiralling under control, he should have been more uh, forthcoming with that. But did he you not just say he knew damn well? Yeah, because... He yeah, so, so you're saying he had the knowledge. Yeah, uh, and he should have been told... He should have and he was asked he directly... By, by, by Barry Cowan, yeah. In respect of that. Yeah. So in that respect, I believe he was meeting the doll and by virtue of that, so do you, the Irish public. So do you believe the answer the minister gave was untrue and that the minister knew that it was a mistruth? No, I, I think, again, this is why they were being choice with their words yesterday. No, but what I do you believe, Shane Castles? Well, I believe that he, he knew what was happening and at that point, that information should have been volunteered instead of this but he was asked directly, draw, wasn't he? Of having to draw blood. No, hold on a second. No, hold on. What, what, what exactly are you saying about Simon Harris? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you exactly what he was asked, Michael. He was asked, was the original budget the cost of the building, the cost incurred to date, and if the budget compared to the original budget was, was, was in check. Now, of course, what the Department of Health are saying yesterday, and this is why there was a row, mm. is that in terms of what was formally on paper, what was formally on paper was... Uh, yes, everything was okay. They were they're saying there was emerging trends. They knew what was coming down the line. What I'm saying is, it then becomes a choice as to what you are volunteering of information okay. to the people and to the doll. And at that point, what this could have avoided, Mike, this is the key point. Contracts were eventually agreed at, at these emergency meetings prior to Christmas to commit to this. Okay, but what if you are August, saying if, is if that in the August and Septem- no, let's just finish the point. If in August and September the opportunity to have that information was forthcoming. You had the opportunity, potentially, mm. potentially, to have a debate about the pausing if costs were completely spiralling out of control. The minister, had he volunteered that, and maybe we wouldn't into this scenario now of having to commission a report for half a million okay. euro of PwC okay. to actually but, ha- have a situation where you're spending money now to find out where money is But gone. just to be clear, because I think people may have had the impression that you were saying that the minister misled or lied to members of the Dáil. Uh, but what you're saying is that the projections were that the overrun would be of the scale that we're talking about this morning, uh, but that that had not been established formally at that time. So the Minister didn't speculate uh, and he outlined the situation accurately as it was on paper. And, and Michael, what I'm saying is that the Minister was aware that this was heading towards 1.5 billion. That was that the projection, but he, he, did, he, he did not lie, nor did he mislead at all. Well, I didn't. I never used the word he lied, Michael. I well, you, ha, lied, you, saying, if you I'm mislead saying, somebody, you, ha, you have to you, you have to be dishonest, what, don't you? What, what, I, what I put to the Secretary General, okay, who works hand in hand in glove mm. with the Minister, is that if they're aware of this information on the 27th of August of these spiralling uh, costs that things were getting out of control, that that information should have been brought into the public domain when asked about mm. budgetary costs. I mean, you can, be, you can be fairly choice with what you want to give people. They were asked a direct question. They should have put that into the public domain. And at that point, maybe then, 
a parliament on behalf of the people of Ireland could have made a decision, let's haul this in, let's make an, and let's make an informed decision. But of course, what happened was this was all done Christmas mm. week, as is the want. And then we, we have and a the minister had spending half a million uh, on PwC uh, 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 to tell you where things have gone wrong. Uh, and as uh, the minister uh, explained to the health committee earlier in the week, he had three options and the one he chose was to proceed. Uh, did he make uh, the right decision? Well, at this point now, we've got a Department of Health uh, telling us that well, it would even cost more if you'd, if you'd pause. Mm. But again, we, we, had, we made that, had we got that information in August, then at that point, you could have had an informed decision based on a review of costs and say, well, what can happen here? And you would have had the five-month period before the ultimate deadline in terms of actually signing contracts. But of course, that choice was never afforded people because the information was only disclosed uh, in Christmas week. And now at this point, they're saying, well, it's the least worst option. As I said, the Department of Health were trying to put the blame on yesterday to the Children's Board uh, that they established uh, to to develop this project. Uh, They were quite frankly uh, rebutted by that by the Controller and Auditor General who said, no, ultimately we've got a Department of Health who are responsible for this and ultimately the Minister for Health as well. Mm. Nobody seems to know who's responsible. At least that seems to have been the view of uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and it expressed concerns about the different roles that would be assumed by the Department of Health, the HSE, the Hospital Development Board and the Children's Hospital Group. But as we speak this morning, uh, there is a review underway, as you said. Uh, But in fact, there's two reviews underway. Why is the Department of Health carrying out its own review when there's already a review underway by PwC? Well, I'm not too sure if they're going to be as... as, as, um in terms of answering their own questions as they were with us yesterday, who knows what they, what they will uncover. Um, what, what was important, I know you've gone through a lot of the people there that uh, have been mentioned in terms of who's responsible. As I said, the Comptroller and Auditor General made it very clear yesterday that responsibility lied with the Department of Health, its line manager, the, the, the Minister for Health, in terms of actually reading this in. They set this board up in the first place because they said they didn't have the expertise uh, within the actual department to deliver on this. What was evident yesterday is that the expert group that they set up, the statutory board, doesn't seem to have the expertise either because they're coming in at double the cost uh, of what they had originally anticipated and what Leo Varadkar said was $650 million all in in April 2016. He said that on the 6-1 news to the Irish people. And as I said, we're now standing at $1.7 billion. And, and potentially that's, it's not going to end there. And the only thing that's coming in on budget is the hole in the ground that they dug. Do we know what's going to happen next? Well, what's happening next is, is in, in terms of the actual build, um, they're actually obviously finishing uh, the, mm. the work, the, the hole in the ground, the, the ground site works, which is the only part of this project that's going to actually come in on budget. They have agreed on the phase two um, aspect, which is now commencing. And as I said, you had actually five tenders for the first phase, they split this into phases. That was another part of the row yesterday. Mm. This wasn't an all-in project. They split it into a phase to dig the, the hole in the ground and then the second phase for the build. Uh, and the same contractor, BAM, uh, ended up winning the contract for both. And they had the option uh, not to award the second contract um, to the same person uh, that carried out the first, but mm. they didn't avail of that. They went with the second sure. and then suddenly conspired to control. But, 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 but it, it is the prospect of a, a National Children's Hospital on the site of St. James's Hospital in doubt this morning. Does it hinge on the outcome of these reports? Um, I, I don't believe so from what I heard yesterday, Michael. No, they, they, they board uh, themselves and Mr Pollock, uh, who was heading up that board, uh, the project director, um, had said that no, the actual... The, the, the commencement of phase two is actually now underway as we stand and uh, that would seem to be the case.
Shane Castles, Fianna Fáil TD in Meath West, is a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee and he was speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around uh, this time on a Friday, to find out how our public representatives have represented us in the Oireachtas over the course of the last week. The Loud Meath Oireachtas report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Loud Meath Oireachtas report. We begin a round of this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. Industrial action by nurses across the country was discussed at length and independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, pleaded with the government to address the dispute at the earliest possible opportunity. Taoiseach, uh, 1.4 million per week on, on agency notion, one nurse available for every four vacancies, a 7,000 euro gap in pay, negotiations going on with the WOC, the trolley situation, the waiting lists, and Minister, from day one, sorry, Tisha, from day one we always said that your, your health was your word of life. And you said this morning, and you keep repeating it again, this will be sorted out. Taoiseach, if it can be sorted out, can we not sort it out now before it gets worse? And I'm, I'm pleading with Taoiseach. Is it, like, I hear talk about 300 million or 200 million, whatever it is. But Taoiseach, listen, the new children's hospital, and I said it yesterday, we all need a new children's hospital. But all I'm trying to say, Taoiseach, is the best way to get it sorted out, and, and for the people of Ireland is, as when we've been through a tough time for the last number of years, is please, Taoiseach, meet them and sort it out. Speaking in the Shannon on Wednesday, Labour Senator Jed Nash said the nursing dispute can be sorted, but only if the political will of the government is there. Unfortunately, a lack of imagination and lateral thinking has been shown by the government side in terms of how this particular issue has been handled. And unfortunately, it pains me to say this, that in the context of not just this, but a range of other disputes, that this government has shown a tin ear in terms of how it approaches industrial relations. Um, This issue can be fixed if the political will is there, but I don't detect that the political will is uh, there at present. And I want to reiterate what I said. A way can be found, and I believe there is a way through the current public sector agreement to address the concerns of the nurses while retaining the integrity of the entire public sector agreement, if imagination and lateral thinking is shown by the government side. Sinn Féin introduced a private member's bill during the week calling on the state to stop lenders from transferring mortgages on residential properties without the consent of the owners. Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster said the government's existing regime is shameful. Just three months ago, a state bank that had been bailed out by the Irish people announced that it was selling over 6,000 family home loans to an unknown entity. Loans belonging to families that had been engaging with the banks and many had never missed an agreed payment and again you did nothing. You sat there smugly and you turned a blind eye and you continue to sit there while family home loans are being sold off to these unaccountable vulture funds ignoring the suffering of these families. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're not but you ought to be. And that is why Sinn Féin brought forward this bill, to stop these banks from selling off loans to these unaccountable vulture funds. And every TD in this bubble that has a modicum of conscience should do the right thing and support this bill. No consent, no sale. During the same debate, Sinn Féin TD Gerry Adams said the banks have no empathy whatsoever for struggling mortgage holders. Sinn Féin doesn't share the Taoiseach's opinion that vulture funds will willingly make deals with households and write down distressed mortgages. That has not been my experience 
in my Dal Kyantar in County Louth. And we also oppose the Government's support for three Irish mortgage lenders, which the Government wholly or partly owns, selling off distressed residential mortgages to vulture funds. Last August, Ulster Bank sold off a portfolio of 5,200 mortgages to Cerberus. It was a deal worth $1.4 billion. The bank gave its customers 90 days' notice of the sale of their mortgages. And as the Dáil will recall, the sale by NAMA of Project Eagle in the north and of SiteServe, and the role of Cerberus in all this is still the focus of a commission of investigation chaired by the Justice Cook and of an investigation in the north by the National Crime Agency. The Boundary Code of Practice states, and I quote, that a loan secured by the mortgage of residential property may not be transferred without the written consent of the borrower. The Central Bank has acknowledged that no lender or credit firm has ever been punished for breaches of the Code of Conduct. And in the years since the economic crisis, the Central Bank has been more concerned with the welfare of the banks than with the welfare of families at risk of losing their homes, including many in County Louth. Guard the numbers in County Meath were raised in the Dáil on Wednesday. Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East, Thomas Byrne, told Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan that it was unacceptable that a place like Ratoth has no Garda station at all. The Minister states that 73 new Garda have been assigned to the Meath Division, and I accept that, but the, the, the counter to that is, uh, Minister, that while there has been an increase and a welcome increase, the increase overall in the number of Gardaí is in the order of about 29. So when, you, when the Commissioner allocates 73 to Meath, uh, there's approximately 40 to 50 retiring uh, as well, and that takes away from the numbers. But we do welcome the increase. Um, it is part of the conference's apply, but I think more work needs to be done in Meath in particular. There are a number of reasons for that. One is our population. Next door in West Mead, they have twice as many Gardaí per head of population than County Mead does. Uh, that, that's a fact. We have about one for every 600 and something. They have one for every 300 and something. The figure varies. Um, we also have, in my constituency, the largest town in Ireland without a Garda station. That's for a tote. And I would certainly urge the Minister, if he's discussing these matters with the Commissioner, to bring that to his attention. And we have other areas like Slane or Dunboyne, where we only have part-time Garda stations as well. In response, Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan said there has been a 15% increase in Garda numbers in County Meath in the last four years. The Garda strength in the Meath division uh, has now recovered to levels that we saw back in 08 09. The um, increase in the, uh, in the four years since the, uh, the Garda strength in Meath uh, diminished it is now recovered. There has been an increase of 15% from the low point of 277 in 2015. The Senate was told on Wednesday that there will be 1.3 million people over the age of 65 in this country by the year 2040, and the government aims to encourage more of the elderly to move from rural to urban areas. Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Me, the West, Damien English, said this is happening already and cited an area in County Carlow. One of the best I've seen was actually in County Carlow, where I went down with Deputy Deering to look at a project there. And I was very, very impressed in a very, very small village, rural area, where the, the community had come together with the parish and some funding from our department and actually made it happen. And they delivered housing for people uh, of, 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 of older years who could come in from rural houses, rural area, and live in that village. And a perfect project. And that's what we're trying to do more of. And I get the sense here from talking to all the senators here today that we all agree this is something we have to do there are some good examples of it. We all visit nice projects in our counties, but we want more of it, and we want to scale up. And that's exactly why 
our department matched up with Minister James Daly's and Minister Harris's department, department of Health to actually put together a policy document which allows us to do more of what's, what's good out there, to scale up and to have a lot more housing options and solutions and choices for people uh, as they age and as they get older and absolutely to keep them in, in their place, that sense of place, sense of location and the option to live where you want to live. Fianna Fáil introduced a private member's motion this week calling for more money to be spent on juvenile liaison officers. Speaking in the Dáil on Wednesday, party TD for Me the West Shane Castles cited one particular incident in Navan last year and the need for greater punishment to be applied to youths who intimidate and threaten. In one particular estate in Navan, the fallout from a drink-fuelled evening saw them take axes to each other as temperatures soared in their heads and they decided to go at each other with hatchets. And the Garda Armed Response Unit had to be called to restore order and it resulted in the road into the estates being sealed off. Now if these lads want to hack each other to pieces with axes, there are many that I met that evening that would say, away with you lads and do it. But the lives of innocent people were put at risk that night, as well as the lives of the Gardaí who were dispatched to deal with the incident. And I'm sick of these young thugs being led away scot-free. And there is a need for consequences for their action, as stated by the policing authority. A need for consequences, as stated by the policing authority. And so the call this evening for an increased and sustained investment in the juvenile division programme by Deputy O'Callaghan is needed and for us to stand with our communities who in so many cases have had their lives ruined by juvenile thugs. And that contribution by Fianna Fáilty D from Meath West, Shane Castles, concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray should have another Loud Me the Oireachtas Report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. Research from Queen Mary University of London suggests smokers are almost twice as likely to quit the habit with the help of e-cigarettes than they would be if they relied on nicotine patches or gum. A trial involving almost 900 smokers found that 18% of the e-cigarette users gave up altogether after a year. The successful 18% of Vapors quitting fared much better than the 9.9% of smokers who managed to quit with the help of other forms of nicotine replacement therapy. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Let's talk about it with Dr. Patrick Durley, who's the chairperson of Ash Ireland Council of the Irish Heart Foundation. Good morning to you, Dr. Durley. Thanks, as always, for joining us here on the programme. I think you've always been hesitant in terms of recommending or endorsing e cigarettes does this study change that in any way well i think um as you say the uh the, the, those who used e-cigarettes uh were more likely to uh to quit smoking uh after one year um by the way participants also received behavioral support just for one month which is pretty short really mm. and uh the the issue, though, is I think it has to be seen in the context of, uh, well, there are two issues. First of all, after one year, 80% uh, of the uh, the e-cigarette users were still 
sorry, uh, mm-hmm. those who use e-cigarettes or still using e-cigarettes. Yeah, after shocking. One year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That raises some concern, mm. and that's compared with nine percent. Uh, of those using uh, traditional nicotine replacement. So there's a bit of a paradox there, you know. Um, and there is... Mm, but I, I take it that 90% of those who were using nicotine replacement were smoking again. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, mm. 80% who are using... Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, it comes back to the, 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 the old argument. Yeah. Would you, would, using, would, are, you, are you better are you smoking e-cigarettes, vaping, than smoking nicotine? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. you yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are better, and I think there's a, there are some myths about that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a lot of people think that there is dangers with e-cigarettes, and some eminent uh, researchers and professors who should know better have, have, have made statements to that effect. So uh, that that is fair. But I think it also so uh, the fact that uh, people, some of uh, the e-cigarette users, are still. Um, uh, using e-cigarettes after one year, that is a concern. Mm. As I say, that compares just with 9% of those using NRT. But the other thing is, I think it's got to be looked also in the context of uh, treatments that are actually more effective and have been proven more effective. Uh, and for example, a drug called varenicline uh, in combination with uh, traditional nicotine replacement is the most effective. Is it dangerous? Uh, the difficulty is. Uh, which varenicline? Yes. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It's it's you know, and as much as you can say that any um, uh, medication is safe, yes, it is safe. It's got a good, a good track record. Mm. Uh, and um, what what, what know, are the side effects? I, I mean, are, are there are there potential psychotic side effects that can it lead to uh, suicidal ideology or death? Uh, there were some concerns about that, but there, there, there's one very good study which uh, I think put, put those, uh, which uh, I think debunked a lot of those myths. But I, I think the issue is mm. anyway, uh, you've got to get a prescription for this drug. And if a doctor has any reservation, uh, for example, if somebody has a mm. history of uh, psychological difficulties, mental health issues, uh, the doctor may, mm. may say, you know, look, you're better off. Uh, uh, not using you you wouldn't yeah. have those concerns because I, I know uh, and I'm asking you the question genuinely we're on the same page yeah. here if we yeah. can get sure. the information to people who yeah. want to give up yeah. smoking uh, well let's give yeah. it to them uh, but I think people are genuinely well, there, concerned there, there, there they've a they, they, called, yeah there was a major study called the Eagle study which hmm. uh, which was a, a good uh, well-designed study which uh, showed no uh, which showed no evidence of that hmm. but again like you need to consult with your doctor and they're not as po- uh, this drug obviously is not nearly as popular as e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes are popular. The, the, Lots of people are using. The weird fear is about it, it though again, because it was used by the American Army, wasn't it? Uh, and uh, there was concern that yes, some people yes, were put on yes, this uh, ended up true, yes. taking their life by yeah, suicide. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure if uh, that link yeah. w- was established anywhere else outside of the study that you're saying, which has debunked it. Yeah, but it was a very well-designed study. Mm-hmm. But the other concern really is that the big concern about e-cigarettes is their their long-term safety. And that has not been established. They, while they may help a lot of people to quit, and I'm sure there are people listening who yeah. um, feel they have been able to quit because of e-cigarettes. But, like, there are a lot of concerns raised um you know about their long-term use. Mm. There are cell studies, which are studies uh, which suggest that 
some changes uh, occurring in the lungs of people using e-cigarettes. Uh, you know that they um, they they're similar. Mm. to the changes. And they're uh, obviously very habit-forming. Uh, 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 and I mean, I know there's uh, legitimate concerns about young people who have never smoked taking up e-cigarettes for whatever reason God knows it. But you see also yeah. ex-smokers going around with them literally around their neck. Uh, and it's a horrible thing to see. Uh, and this study uh, has found it as well that when people go on to e-cigarettes, they use them more frequently and for longer than these other replacements. That's right, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I mean, it would be interesting to see if... Um, uh, in the longer term, they, they, some of these people do actually quit, mm. you know, uh, rather than being a, a, a dual addicted, in other words, addicted mm. to e-cigarettes and to tobacco. You know, uh, mm. it would be some consolation, I think, if, you know, even beyond a year, we could see some of these people quitting. But uh, we don't have that evidence yet. So, so some encouraging uh, parts uh, in relation to the e-cigarettes, in relation to the vaping, uh, and in relation to the complaints that people generally have about trying to give up cigarettes. Uh, people tell you, I couldn't stand the urge. I, 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 I couldn't uh, bear uh, to live with him or her when they were trying to give it up. Uh, but this study found uh, that people uh, experienced less urges uh, after four weeks uh, and uh, that they were less irritable, less restless, uh, and uh, their concentration wasn't uh, as poor as other people uh, would complain generally. Yeah, and that's a positive uh, for e-cigarettes. If you like, that is a positive. Uh, so I, I think the real issue, people need to inform themselves of the different options. And if uh, e-cigarettes are certainly an option for, for, for people to quit. But I think, as I say, you know, given that there are, uh, and particularly for those who maybe have tried the other methods, but certainly uh, they would not be uh, the, the first resort, if you like. They would not be, you know, the go-to option. Um, and I think that's where the UK authorities have gone a little bit too far in interpreting the studies, because even if you accept their lowest estimate of the damage caused by e-cigarettes, and they do accept that there there could be some health harm, uh, their lowest estimate is 1.5%, highest is 5%. But if you take the 1.5%, that could actually mean a lot of health harm, across the large populations in so many countries now in Europe and elsewhere Mm. that are actually using e-cigarettes. So that's something that uh, people need to bear in mind. Okay, so there is a paradox there. Public health terms, Mm -hmm. you know, you may get more quitters promoting e-cigarettes. You may get more people quitting, Mm. but you may also get more health harm. All right. Uh, just to conclude, Dr. Dorderley, for somebody listening to us uh, who has never thought about quitting before, uh, would you advise that they would try to go on gum or patches, first of all? If that doesn't work, then go to the doctor, get a prescription for that drug that you mentioned. Uh, and if that doesn't work or if they've tried everything else, whether that's uh, one of uh, these alternative treatments or whatever it is, uh, that uh, at that stage then they may try e-cigarettes. Yes, I mean, what, 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 you know, and whatever works for you is good. Uh, as I say, it's much, it is much safer than smoking tobacco. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And is it better to dual smoke or vape or whatever way the uh, phrase uh, applies to people who vape and smoke than to just smoke? Well, I think you, you, you will have to do that for some time. Mm. You know, like you have to give yourself a chance, maybe three months or so. Mm. Uh, maybe a little, you know, I think after six months you need to begin to question, are, are, mm-hmm. you know, are you really going to get off um, the, uh, the the cigarettes? Um, 
And some people will say, well, they have been cut down. Yeah, that may be a benefit. But um, there, there is there has been some concern for a long time that, about people uh, being having dual addiction to, you know, being addicted to cigarettes. In other words, not not giving up and uh, vaping on top of that. Okay. All right. Well, so that, that is something to be avoided. Food for thought for some of our listeners uh, this morning. Thanks uh, for that advice and for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dr. Patrick Durley, Chairperson of Ash Ireland Council of the Irish Heart Foundation, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Indeed, for this week, our time has run out. There will be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, in the afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.